This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. A reminder, dailygiving.org, a sensational charitable institution that aggregates thousands and thousands of people's single dollars each day, closing in on 10,000 as I record this in March of 2022. And they select every day a different charity, different organization that receives all of those funds. Each one is vetted, carefully chosen for its quality, its efficiency, its community service. And daily giving is perhaps the wisest charitable investment that you can make. Go there right now and add yourself along with almost 10,000 other people to that daily roster. Meanwhile, very excited to present not only today's guest, Jenna Beltzer, but broadly speaking to introduce the four-part series we are now doing on the OU, the Orthodox Union Impact Accelerator. The Impact Accelerator is an exciting project in which the OU is taking a leadership role to help incubate early stage nonprofit organizations to help them grow and achieve their missions, their goals with much greater success, wider impact, and it is a service that the OU is doing for the broader Jewish community. Over the coming weeks, we are going to be featuring a series of organizations that have won the right to be included in different classes, different cohorts of the Impact Accelerator. We've selected a few that are really outstanding and fascinating, interviewing the founders and highlighting these missions. Our first interview, however, is with Jenna, who is not a particular nonprofit director or founder herself, but who is the director of the program overall. She herself has a wonderful life story, a personal Jewish journey, an interesting corporate journey as well, and now coming to the OU for the past couple of years and running this unique community endeavor. I encourage you to take a look at the latest edition of Jewish Action, which comes out quarterly. That is the Orthodox Union's fabulous magazine. And in this most recent edition, there's an article featuring the Impact Accelerator and Jews You Should Know, and this forthcoming series on some of its exceptional entrants and products. A reminder, as always, to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Subscribe or follow wherever you're listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, or wherever it might be. Comments and questions to JewsYouShouldKnow at gmail.com. And now to the first in our four-part series highlighting the work of the OU Impact Accelerator, kicking off with our conversation with Accelerator Director Jenna Beltzer. We're here with Jenna Beltzer, Director of the OU Impact Accelerator, which we'll hear all about and which we are going to be featuring over the next couple of episodes some of their outstanding winners and uh, the companies that have really made it in their program. But first, let's hear about the origin story of the program itself and of the director herself, and that is Jenna. How are you, Jenna? I'm great. Thank you for having me this morning. Great great to have you with us. And um, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you are from and what the uh, pre-impact accelerator life looked like for you okay in some ways i'm like there was a life before the impact accelerator no way but um (laughs) no i'm just joking um so i I grew up in long island new york and um i went to i went to school in philadelphia i grew up always kind of interested in different in different endeavors different business i was a president of my high school so i was definitely getting involved in things um and and in college i think i got more involved both in the jewish community and in general um, in different efforts here and there. So when I graduated, I went into investment banking, um, which was quite different from what I'm doing right now, but, um, I really loved it. I love the analysis. I love thinking about new companies and everything like that, or, you know, merging companies and and everything along those lines. And then, um, from there I went into financial technology. So I worked at two different FinTech companies, as we call them. Um, they were both startups. And so, um, before working at the impact accelerator, I really had this startup bug, so to speak, and it kind of, and that was a little bit like 
marrying kind of liking to get involved in new projects with also my background previously in finance. And then when the impact accelerator came up at the OU, it was really an even greater marriage, so to speak, of having the startup background and wanting to work um, and do a little bit more in the Jewish community. So that's that's kind of how that came together. Okay, wonderful. Now let's let's just rewind a little bit. I want to get more uh, color on your your early upbringing. Uh, you said you were born or raised in Long Island. Yes, exactly. Um, so I was raised in Long Island. I grew up in a family that was we were reform. We went to synagogue on the high holidays. I went to Hebrew school on Tuesdays and Sundays. Um, you know, every so often we would do like the family Shabbat dinner or things like that, that I remember in my home. I always remember my mother lighting candles on every holiday, which was like, like, I, like, I don't even think my family knew that was going on, but I knew it was going on. Um, and then throughout, let's say high school, I started getting a little bit more interested and a little bit more involved in things. And really in college, when I met a lot of friends, um, who were who were observant and kept Shabbos I remember thinking like I didn't know that people still did that like I didn't know you know because just I grew up on Long Island which is so Jewish and all my friends in high school were were mostly Jewish but not many people were observant so I'd say in college my eyes were opened and I had Shabbat dinners with my friends and they did this like every week you know so it was amazing and that's when I started to learn more um, about Judaism and get more involved there. Now, which town in Long Island are you from? I'm from a town called Syosset. So it's 10 minutes from Plainview. If people know Plainview, people know Syosset. It's a train stop. So people always, oftentimes know that from the Long Island Railroad. If you work at University of Maryland, then you've uh, heard of Syosset because lots of kids go there from, uh, from that town as well as all the other surrounding towns. Um, and you... You said you were very active in high school as kind of in just general leadership. You were president of the high school? Yes. So Which my, I, Is that Syosset so High School? Grade. What high school is that? Syosset High School, yes. I know like all the stats, we had 2,500 kids um, in, our, in our school, 500, I think it was like 68 in my grade. Um, so yeah, every starting in eighth grade, I decided to run for student council class president. And then every year... Um, I kind of continued to that when my senior year becoming the president of the high school. So you were class president every year of high school. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Now, what, what was that experience like? Was that, uh, was that kind of like a serious position or was it more of like a, a vanity type thing? A popularity contest. So <laughs> um, I, I always say like, it was, I was not that popular. I mean, like I was not unpopular, but I was not so popular. It was not a popularity contest. And then we really, it was really a lot more, um, in our school, at least of a community service oriented role. So for example, um, my senior year, we sponsored our community sponsored a house for Habitat for Humanity, like the whole community did. So that was something that we ran through student government. Um, we always did um, different types of walks and, and charity events and things like that. And that was always coordinated through student government. So I think if anything, that probably put that community mind um, in my background to the point that when I went to college and I was thinking about running for student government again, and I found in college, it was very political, like the way that, that you probably know this from living in DC, but like the way like real politics runs. And I was like, oh, that's, that's not so interesting for me. Like, like I liked the community aspect of what I was doing. So I, I guess you parlayed that, that experience and I'm sure, uh, wonderful academic credentials into a, uh, admissions to Penn, right. And, uh, Tell me a little bit about your time at Penn. You alluded to it already. I guess you were in Wharton. I wasn't in Wharton. It's funny. I ended up in investment banking because I had my first finance internship when I was 16 years old in high school. And after that internship, I thought I definitely do not want to be in business, which so I was like, I'm not applying to Wharton. I don't want to be in business. Um, and then lo and behold, I went into banking, but um, which is very common. I guess you did go to Penn. So you kind of yeah, required. Exactly. It's like, it's, it's common to end up in banking, but no, but I ended up liking, I only really had to see one vein of business through that internship. But like you mentioned, yes, I saw, I was, I was accepted into Penn and my freshman year, I had a friend on my hall who wore yarmulke every day, which, like I said, I was like, I thought that people only wore yarmulkes in shul or at that time, like temple or synagogue is what we called it. Um, so like, I didn't know the word shul. And so it was, it was, really eye-opening I remember like the first week of freshman year is always like let's say a lot of parties but it's like welcome week and I remember we were up with a lot of my hallmates one night 
talking until like 4 a.m. about God and whether or not there's the existence of God. And we had people all like all different kinds of people there, like not just Jews. And I was like, and this is what we're doing during freshman, you know, during freshman welcome week. Like other people are out partying, but alas, so becoming friends with a lot of people who who were observant my freshman year really opened my eyes to the fact that there was more in Judaism and and like to give some pointers of how much I did or didn't know. I remember my friend freshman year had said to me something about rapping to Philin and like his frat brothers and made friends of him and I mean made fun of him and I was like what's to Philin? Like I really didn't know. So at the end of my freshman year, I went to I went on birthright and it was a really beautiful exploration of kind of like what is this? I, I even with I remember my trip was scheduled to go the day of the flotilla. And I remember thinking, I'm like, there's so much um, going on here in Israel. Like, what is all of this about? Because again, I didn't grow up with such a connection to Israel or, or knowing much about it, but besides what you see mostly in the news, but not necessarily from, from the Jewish homeland perspective. So that was really eye opening. And then I'd say every year at Penn, I kind of got involved in different things. So my Sophomore year, I got involved with Chabad, and they have a program where they help sponsor um, events that you run that have like a Jewish twist. So I remember running like a women's event where we were watching some type of TV show that was for women. And then like the Rabbitson came to speak with us about like women in Judaism before, and then they paid for the food. Um, something great like that. My junior year, I got involved um, with Ma'or on campus. And then my senior year, I was kind of involved with, with things through Hillel, with things through Ma'or, things through Chabad, and just kind of continued to, to learn in different ways and about different ways um, that Judaism still very much does exist, you know, besides the, outside the synagogue. Did you know going into Penn how heavily Jewish it was and, and how much of a religious population was there? That's a great question. It's funny because on my application, I mean, when I was looking at colleges, as you can imagine, Go, eventually going into investment banking, um, I liked Excel and spreadsheets. So that that's something that, that sticks with me um, throughout, even since, since high school. And I remember, again, Judaism was not, it was not so forefront in my life growing up, but I do remember taking all of the schools I was looking at and looking specifically at the Jewish number of students. And I was calculating it in different ways, like the total number of students there, the percentage of Jews and like all these things. And I remember Penn obviously comes up pretty high in terms of number of Jewish students, but it's funny reflecting on it now because like, it's not that at the time it, it, it had meant so much to me or it was so important or I guess as important as let's say now, but but that was definitely a factor in my decision of wanting to go to a school where I'd feel where there was a large Jewish population. So you, it sounds like throughout college, you started having these, these kind of meaningful connection points. Was there anything that was sort of like a, uh, like a light switch at some point that went off for you, or was it very much like a slow burn in terms of your Jewish development? Um, I'd say a a slow, slow progress. There's different like moments here and there, for example, like that, conversation that I mentioned from my freshman year about Cecilia was kind of like a light switch of like wow there's so much more to know um when I was a junior I studied abroad in South Africa and my grandmother had actually passed away while I was there and my parents were like you stay there don't come back so it it was kind of a hard time for me but I remember seeking out like what does Jewish morning look like what should I be doing while I'm here and things like that so that was also kind of something that showed to me that there was that there was more to learn and I wanted to learn more so there's different light switches um, across, across the way, but I'd say it was a very slow, slow progress, um, which I think was good for me because it didn't feel like I was, you know, taking on a whole, like a whole yoke at once. It was really, it was really paced. By the time you had finished Penn, were you fully uh, observant or where, where kind of did you end your college career? So I think um, every year of college, I always said that I wanted to, like my, my freshman year, I probably told myself like, one day I'll have Shabbat without using my phone um, on Friday nights. And then my, by my senior year, I was probably like, I got to a point where I thought like one day I'll have Shabbat. And then after my senior year, I went on a trip to Israel. And on that trip, I was like, I guess, you know, when I just say one day, like in quotes, when I become an adult, I'll keep Shabbat. I was like, that's kind of now I'm graduating college. I'm living on my own in New York city. I'm, I have a job. Like if I want to keep Shabbat and I'm telling myself I'm going to keep Shabbat one day, like, let's try this now. So um, right after graduating was when, like I said, like mentally, I told, like I felt like I was Shabbat observant, but certainly not um, in, like in 
practice just because I didn't know a lot of things, you know, and, and even when I was like home that summer, I wouldn't even have not known like where to go to shul or where to observe or things like that. So there was definitely um, my, I have a rabbi. I ended up going to seminary after college. I have a rabbi who says like, there's Shabbat observant, like, you know, you're aware that there's Shabbat and then there's like Shabbat observant, like you're keeping all the little tiny, little tiny mitzvahs. And so I was like, definitely not keeping all the little, the not tiny mitzvahs, but the little nuances of Shabbat yet. But mentally, I knew that I wanted to be in that direction and was attempting to start going that way. So right after college, you spent time in Israel? So not right after college. So I went, um, I went into investment banking. And then after some time doing investment banking is I went to seminary um, at Midrasha Rachel. So where, where did you, uh, which bank did you work for? I worked for Goldman Sachs. Could you be any more cliche, Jenna, as a, as a panel law? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Really not. <laughs> but so funny is that, you know, at Maryland, it's like almost nobody goes to Goldman Sachs. And there's like, there's like one or two, I happen to know a couple of kids who have done it. You know, there's like one or two a year and they're like the standouts. Like they, their entire college career is focused towards getting into Goldman, getting to Goldman. They're doing all the internships and all the, you know, at Penn, it's like, you just have to like sneeze and there's like old re- recruiter right there. Just so much <laughs> about, you know, where you're, where you're coming from fascinating but so what I, were you, how were you prepared for that role if you hadn't been you know in Wharton and hadn't had that that really intensive kind of background yeah so it's a, it's a great question I'd say that um funny how that progressed as well especially alongside my Jewish journey so my um I went to their presentations on campus mainly because through my internship that I mentioned when I was in high school I had met someone who worked at Goldman Sachs and I stayed in touch with that person because my dad's a financial planner. He always taught me the power of, in quotes, like one-on-one marketing, which meant basically networking. So I had, I have that, I don't know, in my blood since I was young. He'd always say one-on-one marketing. It's like remembering kids' birthdays or this or that. So this person who I met through that internship, I stayed in touch. And when I was at Penn, he said, oh, a few of my colleagues are coming down to Penn to give a presentation. You should go see them or like go, go to the presentation. So I was a freshman. I was the only freshman there because everyone else was a junior looking for an internship. And I you know, filled out the card saying I was here, whatever else. And they're like, I guess that, that seemed impressive at the time because no other freshmen were there or thinking about it. So um, that some, that year, my freshman year, they, they had this like women's leadership day where they just kind of introduced a few freshmen. It was like 20 of us freshman women um, introducing us to different parts of the investment bank. Uh, my sophomore year, I again went to the presentation just to kind of put my name in. And, um, and I also applied for the internship kind of knowing that I wouldn't be able to do the internship because I was going to South Africa that following year abroad and that started in the summer. Really just trying to, again, have my name kind of continue in this pile I do from being at Penn that Goldman Sachs is a good thing. And from there, I got like a week long um, winter break internship with, in the investment bank, which was actually when I was supposed to go um, to Poland originally with, with one of the campus, Jewish campus groups. But I did this internship. And from there, I was able to actually earn the internship for the following summer. So from this sophomore year program, I earned the internship for junior going into senior year, which was great because then from that point on, as you can tell probably from my personality, I'm not necessarily a slacker, but like- You could chill a little bit, yeah. You (laughs) you could chill a little bit because you have this internship now. So it's funny because then when I came back to campus after studying abroad, it was the spring semester of junior year, which is when everyone normally does their interviews to try to find the internship and I had already had it so I actually signed up for a Jewish Kiru program on campus called Maor and I figured oh I have the time now to do it because all my friends are going to be you know studying for their interviews and whatever else and I I have this and then lo and behold I feel like that tension kind of continues where I say sometimes like Goldman Sachs allowed me to become religious because I was able to have because of their internships and the different offers I um I got from them I was able to kind of more into Judaism, which I don't know if I would have considered in my head at least the equate like the equation to be able to do that throughout. At any point, did you get to meet? I mean, I'm sure you did eventually, but that time, did you meet uh, Mr. Steinberg? Thomas Steinberg was, you know, our long. Obviously, I work for Moore uh, in my my day job slash night job <laughs> slash always job. <laughs> but you know, that longtime chairman of the board was was also a longtime Goldman Sachs VP, and uh, you know, had, had later moved on from there to the Tisch Foundation or the Tisch family enterprise rather um did you did you meet him at any point early in the journey or uh, only later so i met him actually on that trip to israel right after i graduated and he be, because of because i was going there and he had worked there he became a very close mentor of mine to the point that i remember 
um, I was looking at apartments in the Upper West Side and I had told him I wanted to keep Shabbos or I was looking at apartments in the city. And he's like, if you want to keep Shabbos and you're going to live in the city, make it easy for yourself and live in the Upper West Side. So I was like, okay, great idea. Because I, at the time, I, again, I wouldn't have known where, where Jews were living in the city. So I remember um, finding an apartment in the Upper West Side and like I kept in touch with him throughout because it's, it's, a, it's an intense experience. Um, and it's very hard to navigate, you know, Jewish practice and being in a job that I have my timesheets that were like, you know, 8 a.m. to 3. And my, I remember now my husband's like, was that 3 p.m.? Like, no, every day was like 8 a.m. to 3 a.m. And especially it's hard to navigate in general, keeping Shabbos, keeping holidays and all of those things in the workplace normally, especially in a workplace that can be so grueling and even more so when, um, when a lot of these things are new. Like I remember, you know, trying to keep kosher or trying to say bracha before I eat or anything like that was all still new. And at the same time, you know, not getting much sleep, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it was very hard to navigate all those things. So he became a very close mentor of mine. And then later when I went to Israel, I actually became close with him and Rebison Steinberg, his wife. And so it was really lovely to kind of build my relationship with their whole family. So was the whole uh, banking life Exactly, kind of how it's how, how you imagine it. With you said eight to three, was it really that intense every day? Was it was it just incredibly grueling schedules? Okay, so I I happen to have loved it. I just want to say that, like I loved I loved um, all the people I worked with. I loved the analysis and the work we were doing and everything like that. I'd say the the experiences are quite different. So it happened to be my summer internship. I was staffed on a few projects that were live at the same time. And also I was staffed on, a, on an internal project, which meant that I was working for three partners internally. So normally each partner kind of has their own um, idea of how they want things done, which is very challenging to kind of meet those needs. So I was working on this internal project, which had three partners who were each trying to get their own way across. And um I was again a summer, this was during my summer, I was a summer analyst. I was staffed with another associate. They didn't put an analyst on the project. So it goes analyst, associate, VP, managing director, then partner. And um, my associate was kind of like checked out also. So I was on this trying to navigate, you know, how to, how to make three different partners' opinions, you know, and wants go into this project. And then when I was, came back as a full-time, they staffed me on the same project that I had from the summer. And so two, like I mentioned, two of them were live at the same time. Whereas my friends who I had worked with before and were coming back, they were, they weren't, it just happened to be that I, that these two projects were live at the same time. They kind of got eased into it a little bit better. So I'd say that my situation was, was probably unique, at least from the start of having to work those crazy hours. But um, it's, I think it ebbs and flows. And also I think it's a little bit different now because I know that they have, I don't know if they call it sanctuaries or whatever it is where like you can't work for let's say one weekend day or um, they limit the number of hours or things like that. But it, it was a lot of effort. <laughs> it was a lot of time. So now it sounds like you left Goldman obviously after a couple of years. Why did you leave and, and you switched into the sort of the startup world? So I'll say um, I actually was there for less than a year because at the same time, like I mentioned, I was really trying to navigate becoming observant and wanting to learn more about Judaism and banking. And so I ended up leaving in order to go to Israel. And so I spent um, some time in seminary then. Um, you mentioned Tom Steinberg. I remember like calling him and telling him, I was like, I think I'm going to Israel, <laughs> like, like leaving Goldman going to Israel. Did they give you a lot of pushback? It wasn't an immense amount of pushback. I think a lot of it also had to do with kind of they knew that the workload that I had gotten at the beginning was kind of unique. And like, even my friends were, were saying that like, you, you would have had a different experience if I wasn't staffed like this right at the beginning. It, it, cause, because it just came so apparent to me of like, how can I continue like this when I still have so much I need to discover for myself? And like, I had wanted to go to seminary at different points throughout college. So that's kind of why I was just kind of, I, I felt like I really wanted to go. And it was more of like a self-exploration. I don't feel, like I said, I don't feel, I, I loved working at Goldman. So I decided to go to Israel in order to explore this more because I was like, before I really dig, you know, dig more into my career, I felt like I needed to learn this for myself. So that's when I went to Israel. And then when I came back, it's kind of when I went back into financial technology. So why did you, why did you not go back into banking at that point? I think, I think once I left, I was kind of, you know, I came back and I was, you know, I, I was, I was pretty observant. I was keeping Shabbos and things like that. And, it, and, it, and I was also looking for something that had a little bit more of that startup entrepreneurial experience. And so that's kind of how, why I went back into, to try something new. 
Yeah. So you, you went to FinTech, you said, and I guess, did you go into early stage startups or what kind of startups did you, uh, did you join? Yeah. So it's funny. I always say, I'm like, I'm not the couch surfing type. I'm relatively risk averse. So I went into, I went into companies. I think when I started, there was maybe like 50 to 80 people working at the first company I worked at called Novus, which actually was just acquired um, by SEI, which is, or, or merger. It was kind of exciting to see. And I even see like what my colleagues are still doing. And it grew immensely while I was there, but they were funded. I was getting a, you know, I was getting a weekly or biweekly paycheck. And, um, but it was still very much the spirit was we were all scrappy. We were all trying to build new things. So like, for example, while I was there, I was able to build like the onboarding program and put in place some things about culture and how we, how we had interns and how we onboarded new people, um, as well as different ways that we dealt with clients. Like I remember, um, you know, some of the ways that we like kept track of meetings or things like that. Like we really were building the organization, but I'd say that it wasn't like, you know, me as one of the first five, 10 people living on a couch until we found that first investor. That was, yeah, that was not the experience. <laughs> how many startups were you at? I went to two. So I worked at, um, I worked at Novus. And then I ended, and then I went to a com- an organization, I mean, a company called Visible Alpha, um, which I went there actually because a few of my colleagues from Novus had gone over. And then, like tracking that with time, I ended up going there um, to take on one of like the, it was like a lead data slash like concern, um, customer success role. So I was able to go there and still work with some of my old colleagues. I find that now, even I see, the fintech world is is somewhat small I mean it's large but it's still somewhat small where I see like my colleagues you know going to different companies where they work together then they work apart and then they start new things together and it's, it's like interesting to see like I love following it on LinkedIn um, to see what comes out of that what are kind of like the the areas within business that you really enjoy the most is it you, know, you said you're you're a spreadsheet person you like sort of analyzing data or financials or you know more like strategy or like customer relations networking or one-on-one connections, whatever your father called it. Right. What do you enjoy? Okay. So um, I definitely love building new things. So that's why I always like, you know, when I said I built that onboarding program or just building new systems and productive ways to be, which of course includes a lot of Excel and thinking through like what pieces go together and where. I also really love, like I, I, um, it's funny, I call myself an introverted extrovert or like a more quiet extrovert. I don't think so quiet here, but I am an extrovert. Like I love working with people. I love speaking with people. And maybe that came from my father with the one-on-one marketing. And so being in those customer success, customer relations, they call it a lot of different things with different companies. But being in those roles, I loved them and I still love them. So I liked interacting with our clients, which I was able to do a lot in both of those roles. And even now in some of the programs I built and definitely while I was at these organizations, almost like building out the leadership aspect of them, which is interesting now, even as we have this interview, thinking back to my years, my, you know, my high school years, but like building out, let's say a program for onboarding is also trying to help people reach their greatest potential. You know, so I liked building out though, and I do this still at the OU, um, both through the accelerator and different other programs we have, but really programs that help. So I like the building aspect, working with people aspect, and also the leadership aspect, which helps people to try and be able to, you know, maximize their potential in whatever role they're in. Amazing. So at some point, it sounds like, I guess you got poached <laughs> or something. Uh, you got recruited away to this new venture. Um, and uh, t- take me to the beginnings of is the OU uh, Impact Accelerator. For sure. So while I was at Visible Alpha, I was looking, I was looking to really just get inv- more involved in the Jewish community. And I went to an event where I met a few colleagues from the OU. And at the time, they were working on something that had to do with using data in the nonprofit world in order to in, to influence practice, which is something I actually had studied in college and how measuring impact in the nonprofit world is, is different than having a bottom line and being able to see revenue go up or down. So um, I got involved with this project at the OU and then and that was, let's say, January of 2017. By April or May of that year, I was still I was speaking with these same colleagues. They were actually working in NCSY. And they said to me, there's a new position at the OU starting where we're going to, it's a startup department because it was a new department. Um, we were called the innovations department and we are going to be building new things. So you can see how I like that. And we're working with nonprofit startups, new nonprofit startups. And so um, I remember thinking like, you know, I have a good thing going right now at Visible Alpha, but this seems like a really great marriage between wanting to help the Jewish community and having worked in the startup world. 
And so I ultimately that summer decided to take to, I mean, I interviewed and, and had to earn the role, but um, decided to take this role where it was kind of like a startup department working with startups and, you know, even greater that it was for the Jewish community. So that's how I ultimately um, joined the OU. And then when I started, I like to say we have, we have these on our office at work, we have these different posters that say different like startup terms and things like that. And so one of them says, start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. And I very much think of the accelerator starting like that, where we knew we wanted to help communal organizations. We knew we wanted to help new communal organizations that could address, you know, amazing issues that are, that are relevant in the Jewish community. But let's say that the OU itself was not addressing or wanted to help promote and things like, and things like that. And so we looked around, we were like, the OU has at the time, 120 years of nonprofit experience. We have a great lay leader network. We have so many of these different things together, it made sense to build this model that we built, which, which looks like an accelerator, which is an accelerator to be able to help them. So that's why I say like, we looked around, we're like, what do we have available to us? And what can we do? And this made sense for what we can build from there. What was it like yourself coming into the first time uh, into the nonprofit world, which is obviously very different than Goldman Sachs or even startups that are, you know, ultimately designed to make money. Um, here you're trying to generate communal impact and help others make money, I guess, eventually, uh, or help others improve the community. What, what was that? Was, was it a dramatic shift for you in terms of the, the culture, the, the mores, the, the way of, of operating, um, you know, once you got into the nonprofit sector? Yeah, I, there was a lot of differences and also a lot of things that were similar. And I feel like my background had helped me for it. So for example, we were building something new. So I was used to kind of like needing to figure out what is this, like, who is this person and what do they do and how can they help the project? And so I, I remember like one of my first months at the OU, I would, I would just go up there to anyone and say like, hi, I'm new here. Who are you? What do you do? And that's how we, we actually like put some places in programs. So like, I always, I call that like being scrappy. I'm not, I'm not sure what, what adjective people use. Um, so that I think was very similar, especially in this role, which I know is not common of every nonprofit because a lot of times um, there are very specific ways that you need to do things and you know who you need to talk to for X, Y, Z. But this was because we were building something new. We needed to figure out who we're working with. Um, I'd say in other ways, it was very different. Probably the most apparent from the Jewish perspective, because the fintech world, I felt like I was working with like a lot of like frat guys. Like it was not, you know, and so like I always had to be like, I don't like being touched. Don't hug me. Like things like that. And I remember working at the OU and um it was the first day of the new month. It was Rosh Kodesh, and we had like we had bagels this this day. And I was like, "Wow, I'm in a place where people know it's Rosh Kodesh. Like they know it's the new month. Like it was just so eye opening. I was like, okay, this is like a little bit more in line with with my own calendar. But I'd say like in terms of you know working with smart people and working with people who are motivated and things like that. Like people in the corporate world and the nonprofit world are all very smart, very motivated. It's a little bit different, obviously, like versus trying to win a client versus working in the community. But I'd say like, thank God I've worked with great colleagues in both places. What did the Accelerate actually do? Like, what was its, what was its actual goals? Obviously, I've interviewed and, and we'll release shortly interviews right. with some of the outstanding representatives of different organizations or different institutions that came through the program. But what was the mandate and, and how did you go about then? starting to achieve it? So the accelerator was first founded under this department called Innovations at the OU and the head of the innovations was Rabbi Dave Felsenthal. And so with, with his guidance and also our, lay, our main lay leader at the time, who was Charlie Huari, we built out this program. And there was, there was a few different goals that we had in coming together. One was to kind of, there was such a craze and there is still such a craze and, and such a popular thing in terms of startups in our world, right? You know, I, I think sometimes about like my daily schedule and I'm like, mostly everything I'm using the technology, my phone, you know, Instagram, this, that was things, were things that were created within the last 20 years. Like everything's a startup now. So one of our main things was how can we um, harness this like entrepreneurial spirit, the startup spirit and support that in helping in being applied to community needs. So that was one of the reasons why we created this. We wanted people to know that if you have an entrepreneurial idea or you have a startup that's helping the community, like there is a place for you to go. And, and we wanted to support that whole world um, that exists of, of kind of using, using the spirit of entrepreneurship for the community. I'd say another, so that was one goal that we had. And another goal that we had was um, 
was really trying to like we every time an issue comes up that I mean I'm, I'm coming from the Orthodox Union which we have a lot of different departments that do a lot of amazing things in the community but every time there's a new issue or let's say opportunity in the community we can't just create a new department so part of what we wanted to do is to be able to support the people in our community who are already addressing different issues that exist and trying to help them become bigger and, and better at it so we always say like people who are applying we want them to be able to either scale or replicate so could they grow into a national organization or could they create chapters? Uh, could they address whatever issue area they're already addressing on a greater scale? And then the OU has, our, our mission is to be able to better help the community. We're able to better help the community vis-a-vis -vis these organizations that can be bigger and stronger. And so um, that was part of what we, why we wanted to build this program as well. And I always say in, in, in building our program is that we are a lot of the nonprofit management side. So like a lot of our curriculum is kind of aimed at like, running a business, which the OU obviously has um, a lot of experience in and, and also nonprofit experience. And so we can help the people do what they love and doing what they're doing better by thinking, helping them, you know, work on the operational side of their business as well. So it's interesting that the, the goal is really helping those startups that specifically are designated to solve community needs or address community issues. It, it wasn't a, and isn't a, an address for people in the community who have entrepreneurial ideas generally who just want to, you know, get mentored or get guidance, right? Was, was there ever thought of that or it was always focused on building social organs of that, you know, otherwise could be incorporated in the, into the OU directly, but more efficient to just keep them outside, you know, as their own enterprises. Was that always a clear delineation or was there ever thought of servicing Jewish entrepreneurs who, who needed guidance? Yeah, so we always aim to work with organizations that have a social good. So, I mean, we've toyed with kind of like, would we think of something that's maybe for profit, but socially good? But ultimately, um, the reason, and, and there are a lot of amazing Jews who do have startups and work in the, you know, in the startup space. This is, like I said, this is not, at least at current, and kind of where we're, we're headed, is this is not the address for them, because we're still in line with the OU's mission. You know, we're not, where like while we believe in mentoring and we believe in and helping people make a parnas and things like that, there are other addresses that are more focused on that. While the OU is really focused on giving back to the community and making the community a greater place, um, and in that sort like that socially good way. And so that's why the organizations that we look for, we usually say they either have to be a nonprofit um, approaching a 501c3, and then if they are, let's say, a for-profit model, but still benefit the community in that in that social way then we'll consider it but generally they're they're either 501c3s or looking to be 501c3s which so is a non-profit designation just to define right that, right yeah. right thank you for the clarification so <laughs> what exactly are you guys offering somebody comes to you and says i have this great idea to make uh, i don't know bar mitzvah ceremonies for for dolphins i don't know whatever it is Right. So trying to <laughs> marry environmentalism with Judaism. I don't know. Anyway, so what do you offer? You come in day one, they, they have this idea. First of all, can it be just at, at the early stage of just pure ideation, or do they have to be a little bit down the line? Do they have to have some sort of proof of concept? And at either point, like what are you offering? You are asking the perfect, perfect question. Okay. So um, the whole program we think of in three phases, which is selection, education, and graduation. So the selection process, which is really how we choose the next cohort, we choose six organizations each year to be part of the cohort, is um, we require the, is when we're collecting all the applications. And we, we, even though that's the selection process, we actually view that as the first stage in the entire, you know, in being able to help organizations because the application we have forces organizations to think through, if they haven't already, some, a lot of them have, but think through like, what are my goals? What are my challenges? Who are my mentors? What am I trying to accomplish? And so we find that whether or not you're selected for the accelerator, this is a helpful kind of review of, of what you're doing. So like you mentioned, with that process, we look for organizations. They have to at least have a proof of concept. So our first year, and actually one of the people who, who will come on in a future uh, interview, they had an idea for an organization. And I told them, I was like, if, if you don't have a proof of concept and you don't have at least an initial client before the application process closes, it won't be relevant. You'll have to wait till next year. And so they actually, they worked really hard to be able to make sure that they had a few. Um, like, mom, can you please be a client for me? I need. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Mom, son of the mom, the kid, the neighbor. Um, 
but we, we we wanted to see that it worked because I think there's a lot there's a there's a biggest step is kind of from you know ideas to, to doing it. I, I mean something future I'd love to do is be able to better connect people who have ideas with people who want to do things, um, like put them in place. But that will be that like an interview in a few years. But so they have to have an initial proof of concept, and then it was funny you mentioned you know bar mitzvahs for dolphins because we we have a criteria that we look at both venture criteria and also entrepreneur criteria of the leader themselves in terms of what's a good fit for our program so we look at the community need is there a great need in the community is it is it highly innovative so is it a model that we even have we haven't seen before we haven't seen in the visionary before um potential for scale fit and things like that and then on the entrepreneur side we look at we look at the leader themselves and think like are they you know, one of my colleagues would call it hungry and humble, but we think of, are they, um, you know, do they want, are they coachable? Do they want to learn? Are they passionate about their cause? And so all these things help us kind of identify which six will be chosen for the cohort. So then, um, so that's, let's say like the first offer, so to speak that, or the first part of the accelerator process. And then education is probably what you're mostly asking about in terms of um, what do we offer? So the organizations who are chosen are um, eligible to receive a grant upon the application of $10,000 each. And then, but the, the main components of it is they have this curriculum where it's, like I mentioned, it's nonprofit 101, what really focusing on the management and operations of their organization, where we leverage a lot of lay leadership and also um, my colleagues at the OU in order to bring out the like professionals who can teach about these different things. So a lot of the people who apply are really passionate about helping community in terms of let's say building a curriculum or teaching or this or that but that's they maybe not doesn't have as much experience with marketing or fundraising or building a mission and vision kind of some of those building blocks of running a business and so that's what we bring as well as coaching with myself and our team um, we have a lot of lay leader mentors who are usually in the startup space or in some type of entrepreneurial space and are able to kind of mentor the organization we have an internship program that they're also eligible for and then i say something that has blossomed each year is the collaboration between these or these founders themselves has really helped to build their organizations. And so we run something, for example, called like a certain brainstorming sessions with lay leadership and teams. And I found this year even, and while we are already on Zoom, the founders themselves were running like the same model brainstorming session that we use with each other because it can be lonely to be a founder, especially as you're trying to think through these things. And so the organizations themselves, the founders themselves often kind of like bounce ideas off each other saying like, how does this sound as a mission? How does my updated pitch sound? How does this and that sound? Which is really nice to just, I think in anything, to know that you're not alone um, and know that you have a group of a, a cohort really to kind of continue with through this. So that's, that's the program. How do you foster all this? Do you, do you bring, do you bring them all together to headquarters and, and have a, a couple of days of meeting each other and, you know, brainstorming or WhatsApp groups? Like what's, what's going on to like connect all these people and, and how do you actually deliver the goods? You're asking that as a perfect question for 2022. Our first year was 2000 uh, was 2019, and so we met four times at the OU for three day seminars each, um, which was great because you kind of had this like intense programming together, and then you had almost like your homework and like processing and things like that. And it was it was roughly every six weeks. Our next year, so our second year, which was meant to be kind of like iterating on the first year and, and we're going to make it so much better and learn from our, you know, learn from the first year with COVID. So everything quickly went to virtual. And so we met twice a week and we built in place certain support systems that would allow it to not just kind of be like a Zoom seminar, but we built something out where it was like partners of the week. So you'd relate to um, one of the other people in the cohort every week, kind of an informal conversation and different things like that. And then this last year, 2021, you know, we were able to, I always say like, we're able to go on the offensive a little bit or like be a little bit more proactive knowing it would be a hybrid model. And so um, we were able to plan a lot of programming that would help to, in addition to the curriculum and the seminars where we would learn about information that we'd also be building the cohort virtually. So um, we had WhatsApp groups. We even have a Slack now with alumni as well. So the partners of the week, we did a lot of things where each person in the cohort would um, collect the updates from each other and then we would share them. So we did a lot of things to kind of support and try to build up the collaboration as much as possible while we were virtual. And then this year, we'll kind of continue to do more and that probably stepping towards even more in person now that we can again. So it's just funny you ask that because every year we've done a different model. Normally, like you're, every year is kind of like a little bit 
the same, the same as the year before, but obviously improving, improving and iterating. And so it's for us, it's like we, every year has just been completely different from like completely in person to completely virtual hybrid now, like more hybrid. So it's, it's been funny um, to see how it builds, but it's nice because as someone who I like mentioned before, I like to build new things every year. We, we kind of have to build new things. It's interesting you mentioned that because, you know, what's, what's sort of I don't know, ironic in a way is that you are a group that's helping startups but you yourselves are a startup so you're kind of almost like going through the process in parallel to those that you're servicing which probably helps you have a, a sort of an empathetic approach to the to the building process i'm curious what what's been most difficult about all of this and covid's i guess an, an, an easy one to to single out in terms of just you know the unpredictability and the the fluidity but you know, maybe more fundamentally, the, the notion of taking, you know, highly motivated, but perhaps, you know, unexperienced people building these different projects, what's most difficult about helping them execute that? So I'd say something that's, that's very difficult, which we alluded to earlier, is that the milestones and what impact or growth or success looks like for each organization is quite different. So if you pull back and you say like the milestone is, let's say that you have a mission statement created by week two, then that's something that can apply to each organization. But in order to see certain growth milestones for one organization, it's let's say number of schools that they're working with. For another organization, it could be number of clients, or, you know, like individuals. So another one, it could be families or even growth may not look like number of clients, but may look something completely different. And so I find that finding that correct metric and then being able to kind of like, let's say standardizing it and thinking through it with each organization is very challenging because it's not like we, you know, in, even, even when we try to show people the impact that the accelerators have, it's not like we can say, okay, we went from $5 to a hundred dollars for each client. No, but, or for each accelerator organization. No, it's like the growth looks different for everyone. What success looks is, is looks different for everyone. And also the pace of that. So when one organization, let's say they were both using number of schools, goes from five to 10 schools, that may be an amazing increase. And for another organization, that could be maybe not enough growth, depending on what they're doing. So I think that's, that's definitely a challenge that we have throughout is trying to make the program both general and also specific um, to each organization, and then also be able to kind of like articulate that as people get involved and we're trying to get people involved. For those organizations that have, you know, let's say failed, not meaning not, not really made it through this whole process, um, what do you attribute that to? And then how do you distinguish that from those that have seemed to flourish? Yeah. So um, in general, if you look at the startup world, in some ways we should have, like, if we should have more failures, so to speak. Um, we've, we've worked with 16 organizations since the start and really only one has kind of fizzled out so far. And I, I think it's more of just, it, there's a lot of different factors that can go into it. It can go into the leadership team. It can go into um, other people in the community who are maybe working on this and, you know, things merge or, or come together. So it's, and as we progress, we ourselves would like to look at more kind of like moonshot ideas or things that are a little bit more different. So we're kind of thinking we will have more failures, so to speak, in the in the future, um, as we kind of toe that line further. I, I think it, it's, it's, there's so, this again, because we're not just measuring like dollar signs, there's so many different factors that can come into an organization's success. It could be an amazing organization and there's, they, they, you know, they aren't able to work because now it's COVID, because people are only working virtually and that's like completely you know, stamped on their business model, or they don't have a funder or something like that. So there's a lot of different reasons um, that can go into the success or the, you know, not as much success for an organization. Uh, how does the, you speaking of funding, how does the, you, you said there's, a, there's an initial $10,000 grant, which is, which is nice, but it's not going to get people very far. How does the OU relate from a funding perspective? Do they offer continued support? Do they source donors or is it really just kind of like, advice about fundraising, but not actually helping materially? Yeah, so we have a whole curriculum, like a whole section focused on fundraising, which is meant to help the organizations a lot. 
And then um, through the lay leader, our lay leader network and different mentorship we have, we really try to help make introductions and help people think about like who else could they go through. At current, we don't have follow-on funding. Again, we're in we're going to our fourth year, so perhaps it's something we could look into. But that's the general way that we relate to fundraising for the organizations. Also, we have an our alumni network is able to be very helpful. So, for example, different like people from cohort one perhaps want a grant or. Um, or in a program where they could get more funding, I find that the organizations through the different cohorts are able to kind of help and, and um, mentor each other, so to speak, about how to access that grant or that money or, or things like that. So the alumni network itself is also helpful in terms of thinking about that found foundation aspect of where, where money can come from. And then in terms of us at the OU is also, we have a stipend from the OU and we also fundraise for the accelerator. And I say that the people who are involved with the accelerator you know, they, they, they're obviously communally minded people, but they also want to support innovation in our community. And they see this is the best place to do that, both in terms of building out like the next generation of leaders for our community and building out and supporting new ideas in our community and also kind of the bang for the buck. So for example, like we're in some ways like teaching the man to fish. So people who support our organization or the accelerator um, are able to help our organizations really accelerate their own growth. So they're kind of maximizing their investment by working with us as well. Are people in, in when they join this program, are they mostly going to be connected with their cohort or, or is there like, you said, there's like this wider alumni network. Is it mostly like, who are you, they mostly engaging with once they've gone through it? Is there sort of like a different levels of, I, again, I think of like, I think my, my life is like divided, you know, governed by WhatsApp groups, basically. So is there like a, you know, like an, inter, like an interior WhatsApp group and then there's like a larger one or a Slack channel and then like a broader one and they can plug into that once they get through? How do you build out the broader network so that people can plug into, you know, connect everyone? Or is it more those other five organizations that they're, they're in their lane together? I say yes, yes to all. Um, yeah, so at, when you're first accepted into the program, and so your first year of going through it, generally people are working mostly with their cohort, and they're going through that experience together. Um, you know, assuming all goes well, we'll have like a welcome event, which will include the alumni, so you're able to kind of meet the alumni initially, um, and then obviously continue to interact with them. Well, we'll have the event no matter what, whether it's virtual or in person, um, but that's exactly what we have. We have a WhatsApp group for um, just the cohort and then a larger alum, um, WhatsApp group with the alumni. And then also we're slowly transitioning to Slack as well because that includes some of our lay leadership is on Slack where we have different channels for each cohort as well as the alumni as a whole. And then also, you know, the ability to connect with us and the mentors through, through that also. So there's definitely like each cohort each year has their own bubble, I, I think is the word or circle or cohort um but then also they collect connect with the larger community and we have events throughout the year um where where people are able to connect like that which is really beautiful especially because in different cohorts people are working with different things so some people work with schools some people work with shoals some people work with individuals and so being able to kind of share the connections of like oh how did you get your curriculum into a school people can share across cohorts which is more likely than within the cohort because we try to differentiate like diversify who's in one cohort so those events are always really great um, and really nice to see the connection. Although I would imagine for some of the veterans, it's probably like, you know, with each year when the new people get on the bigger group, they're probably like asking questions that have been asked, you know, three or four times already. Like, <laughs> go look that up. That's one of the only flaws of WhatsApp is you can't, when you join a group, you can't uh, see the previous uh, conversations. You're like, we, we discussed this already. <laughs> So I think, I, yeah, I mean, it's funny because when we, when I work, when we recruit lay leadership for the program, people are always like, I guess in the, in the it, it's true, in the largest startup world, there's a huge culture of mentorship. And so a lot of lay leaders, when I'm like, thank you so much for doing this, they're like, yeah, like, that's, that's how I got, got here is that people mentored me. So there's a huge cult, it's really beautiful. There's a huge culture of giving back throughout our cohorts. And, and we've been able to instill that as well. We're always like big on gratitude. Um, but I think, you know, so I guess I've been the exact conversation has happened, but in terms of mentoring each other, and like some people are really good at different things. Like one of our organizations is really good at branding. Another one is really good at fundraising, this and that. So they're able to kind of, um, it's nice for them to be able to give back to the group as well. And I find that that's one of the huge benefits of the program overall. What's your specific role nowadays? Is it more, are you dealing directly with the member pro, you know, project 
and mentoring them yourself? Or are you more kind of creating the structure in which the lay leaders or the volunteers or, or other or other professionals for that matter are able to do that? Where is your exact role fit these days? Yeah. So in general, in terms of like, I view myself as more on the coaching side and then also putting it together in terms of leading the specific sessions. We've always had either, you know, my colleagues at the OU or other people who work in the Jewish community or outside the Jewish community giving a lot of those presentations. It's not like they, you know, <laughs> they not, they don't hear my voice twice a week, every week for an hour. I think everyone would kind of roll over if that were the case. Um, so I'm still involved in that sense. And I'd say every year, once the, like as the program itself solidifies, then um, my role does change a little bit more to becoming like trying to get it more out into the, into the community. Now that the program is a little bit more concretized, we're trying to get you know more people involved, more people to know about what we're doing because it's an amazing way for people to learn about small organizations that are somewhat vetted also, you know, vetted and innovative. So, that, so that's, that's kind of what I've been trying to work on. But are people emailing you and saying, Jenna, you know, I need advice on, uh, you know, whatever, Excel, <laughs> you know, it's one of your expertise or, you know, I need advice on uh, whatever, you know, like work-life balance, <laughs> you know, from your golden days. I, like, or, or is, are, are you in, in that role at all? Or is it really more that you're creating the, the container for others to be answering those questions? It's really both. Like I work with the organizations one-on-one still um, and also each other though. I'd say, I'd say like, it, it depends what kind of question. So questions like how to work, how to work on Excel or things that every organization is probably dealing with, they, the first reaction is to go to the cohort themselves and to ask, has anyone had experience with this? Can you help? Which um, I actually was recently on maternity leave and I saw the WhatsApp going through and everyone, I had like, you know, so many missed messages of people working together and it was beautiful. And I'm so glad that we built a program where that's the initial reaction is they're, they're relying on each other. Some things that are sometimes more specific in terms of who can I ask for more help or in more intimate things about their organization that let's say I would know as a coach and someone else in the cohort or someone else that they're working with may not know, um, then, then it still comes to me. So, but, but we very much tried to build a system where I do not want to be a key man risk or anything like key man or anything like that. Like it really is meant to be built um, on group collaboration. Just finally, uh, Jana, what, what are a couple of the uh, organizations that you're really proud of that, Maybe maybe one or two success stories, you know, groups that came in with a great idea and but really needed to be crystallized or needed to be optimized in some way, uh, and and that's now emerged as a, as a real player on the Jewish nonprofit scene or in the communal, you know, communal good space, so to speak. Um, okay, amazing question. So one of them you mentioned environmentalism before with regards to the dolphins. So um, one of the organizations that. I think has really blossomed since being in our first cohort is called Grow Torah. And so they focus on experiential Torah education in Jewish day schools. And they teach, um, they teach Torah through gardening, really. But a lot of what they also stand for, is, which, which is amazing just to take a step back and think about it, because it clicks the box of environmentalism, which is obviously extremely important, and also a Torah value. It checks the box in terms of experiential education, which is, you know, not sitting in front of a book. There's a really learning with your hands, but also so many of Torah laws are based on agriculture. So I remember I was, I went to the school with them when they were teaching right before Shavuot and they were talking about the offering, you know, and, you know, and, and different, and different things like that, where I said to my colleague, I said, they were growing wheat. And I said, oh, how does, um, you know, how would this piece of wheat become kala? And he's like, actually, it's a lot of the Shabbos laws. And then he starts going through like how the wheat becomes kala and how it aligns with so many of the laws or things that we observe on Shabbos and it's like wow there's so much in gardening itself um or in, so so that was really an amazing organization and what they've been able to do since has been incredible so they they merged with another um Jewish environmental organization which we love to see because we're not in the business of creating new organizations for the sake of creating organizations we're really trying to support things to become bigger and better so their merger with with another environmental organization was amazing. They've gone on to be in different accelerators in the larger Jewish community. So they were an upstart accelerator. Um, they were recently show, chosen for Slingshots, um, for Slingshots 10 to Watch last year. So they've had a lot of, and also run foundations. They've, and they've grown in terms of their number of schools. They've also been able to build a program where um, they, they teach, kind of, not virtually, but they teach other people in other locations to, to do their curriculum. So it's not reliant on the same founders anymore or the directors. Um, so they've, they really blossomed 
in, in terms of, um, you know, so that's a nice pun, but they really bottomed in terms of, in terms of their growth through the program. And I always say like, you know, Yosef Gillers, who started it and now he runs it with Sarah Just Michael. They're both amazing, incredible leaders. Of course, their organization was going to be successful. Um, and so I really think it's, it's just their leadership continuing to go. But I do think that being like, and, and Yosef will say it also, is like being in the accelerator is kind of, these people are successful and going to be successful no matter what, but it's a nice like validation, so to speak, or um, kind of like confirmation that what they're doing is really great and, and almost like a boost of energy to kind of continue going on the path that they were already going in because they're already amazing. Um, so they're one organization that's done like incredibly over the last three years that we've, that we've seen them grow. Wonderful. Jenna Belzer, the director of the OU Impact Accelerator. And again, we're going to have three featured founders coming up on very immediate future episodes of the podcast. So look out for those over the coming weeks. Really, really excited for that. And uh, even more excited to get the story of how it all began and where this is all coming from. Jenna Belzer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to um, it was great to speak more about all these things. So thank you. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.